this episode, I am going to be reading What Katie Did Next, Chapter the Fourth, on the Spartacus. Chapter the Fifth Storybook England Oh, is it raining? was Katie's first question next morning when the maid came to call her. The pretty room with its gaily flowered shins and china and its brass bed stand did not look half so bright as when lit with gas the night before. And a dim grey light struggled in at the window, which in America would certainly have meant bad weather coming, or already come. Oh no indeed, ma'am. It's a very fine day. Not right, ma'am but very dry, was the answer. Katie couldn't imagine what the maid meant when she peeped between the curtains and saw a thick, dull mist lying over everything and the pavement opposite her window, shining with wet. Afterwards, when she understood better the peculiarities of the English climate. She too learned to call days not absolutely rainy, fine, and to be grateful for them. But on that first morning, her sensations were of bewildered surprise, almost vexation. Mrs. Ash and Amy were waiting in the coffee room when she went in search of them. What shall we have for breakfast? asked Mrs. Ash. Our first meal in England. Katie, you order it. Let's have all the things we have read about in books and don't have at home, said Katie eagerly. But When she came to look over the bill of fare, there didn't seem to be many such things. Soles and muffins she finally decided upon, and, as an afterthought, gooseberry jam. Muffins sound so good in Dickens, you know, she explained to Mrs. Ash, and I have never seen a soul. The souls, when they came, proved to be nice little panfish, not unlike what in New England are called scup. All the party took kindly to them, but the muffins were a great disappointment, tough and tasteless with a flavour about them as of scorched flannel. How queer and disagreeable they are, 
said Katie. I feel as if I were eating round cuts from an old ironing blanket and buttered. Dear me, what did Dickens mean by making such a fuss about them? I wonder. And I don't care for gooseberry jam either. It isn't half as good as the jams we have at home. Books are very deceptive. I am afraid they are. We must make up our minds to find a great many things not quite so nice as they sound when we read about them, replied Mrs. Ash. Amy's doll, Mabel, was breakfasting with them and was heard to remark at this juncture that she didn't like muffins either and would a great deal rather have waffles. Whereupon Amy reproved her and explained that nobody in England knew what waffles were. They were such a stupid nation and that Mabel must learn to eat whatever was given her and ought to find fault. After this moral lesson, it was found to be dangerously near train time, and they all hurried to the railroad station, which, fortunately, was close by. There was rather a scramble and confusion for a few moments, for Katie, who had undertaken to buy the tickets, was puzzled by the unaccustomed coinage, and Mrs. Ash, whose part was to see after the luggage, found herself perplexed and worried by the absence of checks, and by no means disposed to accept the porter's statement that if she'd only bear in mind that the chunks were in the second van from the engine and got out to see that they were safe once or twice during the journey and call for them as soon as they reached London, she'd have no trouble. Please remember the porter, ma'am. However, all was happily settled at last. And without any serious inconveniences, they found themselves established in a first-class carriage, presently running smoothly at full speed across the rich English midlands toward London and the eastern coast. Their destination in London was Bat's Hotel in Dover Street. The old gentleman on the Spartacus, who had crossed so many times, had furnished Mrs. Ash with a number of addresses of hotels and lodging houses, from among which Katie had chosen Bat's for the reason that 
it was mentioned in Miss Edgeworth's patronage. It was the place, she explained, where Godfrey Percy didn't stay when Lord Alborough sent him the letter. It seemed an odd enough reason for going anywhere that a person in a novel didn't stay there. But Mrs. Ash knew nothing of London and had no preference of her own, so she was perfectly willing to give Katie hers and Bats was decided upon. It is just like a dream or a story, said Katie as they drove away from the London station in a four-wheeler. It is really ourselves and this is really London. Can you imagine it? She looked out. Nothing met her eyes but dingy weather, muddy streets, long rows of ordinary brick or stone houses. It might very well have been New York or Boston on a foggy day. Yet, to her eyes, all things had a subtle difference, which made them unlike similar objects at home. Wimpole Street, she cried suddenly as she caught sight of the name on the corner. That is the street where Maria Crawford in Mansfield Park, you know, opened one of the best houses after she married Mr. Rushworth. Think of seeing Wimpole Street. What fun! She looked eagerly out after the best houses, but the whole street looked uninteresting and old-fashioned. The best house to be seen was not of a kind, Katie thought, to reconcile an ambitious young woman to a dull husband. Katie had to remind herself that Miss Austen wrote her novels nearly a century ago, that London was a growing place and that things were probably much changed since that day. More fun awaited them when they arrived at Bath's, and exactly such a landlady sailed forth to welcome them as they had often met within books. An old lady, smiling and rubiskined, with a towering lace cap on her head, a flowered silk gown, a gold chain and a pair of fat mittened hands, demurely crossed over a black brocade apron. She alone would have been worth crossing the ocean to see, they all declared. Their telegram had been received and rooms were ready. With a bright, smoky fire of soft coals, the dinner table was set, and a nice, 
formal, white cravated old waiter, who seemed to have stepped out of the same book with the landlady, was waiting to serve it. Everything was dingy and old-fashioned, but very clean and comfortable. And Katie concluded that, on the whole, Godfrey Percy would have done wisely to go to Bats, and could have fared no better at the other hotel where he did stay. The first of Katie's London sights came to her next morning, before she was out of bed. She heard a bell ring. And a queer, squeaking little voice utter a speech, of which she could not make out a single word. Then came a laugh and a shout, as if several boys were amused at something or other. And altogether, her curiosity was roused, so that she finished dressing as. Fast as she could, and ran to the drawing room window, which commanded a view of the street. Quite a little crowd was collected under the window, and in their midst was a queer box raised high on poles, with little red curtains tied back on either side. To form a miniature stage, on which puppets were moving and vociferating. Katie knew in a moment that she was seeing her first Punch and Judy. The box and the crowd began to move away. Katie, in despair, ran to Wilkins, the old waiter. Who was setting the breakfast table? Oh, please stop that man," she said. "I want to see him." "What man is it, Miss?" said Wilkins. When he reached the window and realized what Katie meant, his sense of propriety seemed to receive a severe shock. He even ventured on. Remonstrance. I wouldn't miss if I was you. Then punches are a lot low, miss. They ought to be put down. Really, they ought. Gentle foxes, a general thing, pays no attention to them. But Katie didn't care what gentle fox did or did not do, and insisted upon having Punch called back. So Wilkins was forced to swallow his remonstrances and his dignity, and go in pursuit of the objectable object. Amy came rushing out. With her hair flying, and Mabel in her arms, and she and Katie had a real treat of Punch and Judy, with all the well-known scenes, and perhaps 
a few new ones thrown in for their special enjoyment. Punch beat Judy and stole the baby, and Judy banged Punch in return, and the constable came in, and Punch outwitted him, and the hangman made his appearance duly. It was all perfectly satisfactory, and just exactly what she hoped it would be. And it quite made up for the muffins, Katie declared. Then, when Punch had gone away, the question arose as to what they should choose out of the many delightful things in London for their first morning. Like ninety-nine Americans out of a hundred, they decided on Westminster Abbey. And indeed, there is nothing in England better worth seeing, or more impressive. In its dim, rich antiquity, to eyes fresh from the world, which still calls itself new. So, to the abbey they went, and lingered there till Mrs. Ash declared herself to be absolutely dropping with fatigue. If you don't take me home and give me something to eat, she said, I shall drop down on one of these pedestals and stay there, and be exhibited for ever after as an effigy of somebody belonging to ancient English history. So, Katie tore herself away from Henry the Seventh and the Poet's Corner, and tore Amy away from a quaint little Tom, shaped like a cradle, with the marble image of a baby in it which had greatly taken her fancy. She could only be consoled by the promise that she should come again and stay as long as she liked. She reminded Katie of this promise the very next morning. Mama has walked up with rather a bad headache and she thinks she will lie still and not come to breakfast, she reported. And she sends her love and says, Will you please have a cab and go where you like? And if I won't be a trouble, she would be glad if you would take me with you. And I won't be a trouble. And I know where I wish you would go. Where is that? To see that cunning little baby again that we saw yesterday, I want to show her to Mabel. She didn't go with us, you know, and I don't like to have her mind not improved. And darling Miss Katie, mayn't I buy some flowers and put them on the baby? 
She's so dusty and so old that I don't believe anybody has put any flowers for her for ever so long. Katie found this idea rather pretty and willingly stopped at Covent Garden where they bought a bunch of late roses for 18 pence which entirely satisfied Amy. With them in her hand and Mabel in her arms, she led the way through the dim aisles of the abbey, through gates and doors, and up and down the steps. The guide followed, but not at all needed, for Amy seemed to have a perfectly clear recollection of every turn and winding. When the chapel was reached, she laid the roses on the tongue with gentle fingers and a pitiful, reverent look in her grey eyes. Then she shifted Mabel up to kiss the old little baby, effigy, above the marble quilt, whereupon the guide seemed altogether surprised out of his composure and remarked to Katie, Little Miss is an American, as is plain to see. No English child would be likely to think of doing such a thing. Do not English children take any interest in the toms of the Abbey? asked Katie. Oh yes, mm, interest, but they don't take no special notice of one tom above another. Katie could scarcely keep from laughing, especially as she heard Amy, who had been listening to the conversation, give an audible sniff and inform Mabel that she was glad she was not an English child who didn't notice things and like grown-up graves as much as she did dear little cunning ones like this. Later in the day, when Mrs. Ash was better, they all drove together to the quaint old keep, which has been the scene of so many tragedies, and is known as the Tower of London. Here, they were shown various rooms and chapels and prisons, and among the rest, the apartments where Queen Elizabeth, when a friendless young princess, was shut up for many months by her sister, Queen Mary. If this is English history, I never mean to learn any more of it, and neither shall Mabel, she declared. But it is not possible for Amy or anyone else not to learn a great deal of history simply by going about London. So many places are associated with people or events and seeing the places makes one care so much more for the people 
or the events that one insensibly questions and wonders. Katie, who had browsed all through her childhood in a good old-fashioned library, had her memory stuffed with all manners of little scraps of information and literary illusions which now came into use. It was like owning the disjointed bits of a puzzle and suddenly discovering that properly put together they made a pattern. Mrs. Ash, who had never been much of a reader, considered her young friend a prodigy of intelligence, but Katie herself realized how inadequate and inexact her knowledge was, and how many bits was missing from the pattern of her puzzle. She wished with all her heart, as everybody wishes under such circumstances, that she had studied harder and more wisely while the chance was in her power. October is not a favourable month in which to see England. Water, water is everywhere. You breathe it. You absorb it. It wets your clothes and it dampens your spirits. Mrs Ash's friends advised her not to think of Scotland at that time of the year. One by one, their little intended excursions were given up. A single day and night in Oxford and Stratford on Avon. A short visit to the Isle of Wye, where, in a country place, which seemed provokingly pretty, as far as they could see it for the rain, lived that friend of Mrs. Ash, who had married an Englishman, and in so doing had, as Katie privately thought, renounced the sun. A peep of Stonehenge from under the shelter of an umbrella and an hour or two in Salisbury Cathedral was all that they accomplished except a brief halt at Winchester that Katie might have the privilege of seeing the grave of her beloved Miss Austen. Katie had come abroad with a terrible long list of graves to visit. Mrs. Ash declared. They laid a few rain-washed flowers upon the tomb and listened with edification to the verger who inquired. Whatever was it, ma'am? That lady did which brings so many Americans to ask about her. Our English people don't seem to take the same interest. She wrote such delightful stories, explained Katie, but the old verger shook his head. 
I think it must be some other party, miss. You've confused with this here. It stands to reason, miss, that we'd have heard of them over here in England sooner than you would over there in America. If the books had been anything so extraordinary. The night after their return to London, they were dining for the second time with the cousins of one Mrs. Ash had spoken to Dr. Carr. And as it happened, Katie sat next to a quaint elderly American who had lived for 20 years in London and knew it much better than most Londoners do. This gentleman, Mr. Allen Beach, had a hobby for antiquities, old books especially, and passed half his time at the British Museum and the other half in sale rooms and the old shops in Wardour Street. Katie was lamenting over the bad weather which stood in the way of their plans. It is so vexatious, she said. Mrs. Ash meant to go to York and Lincoln and all the capital towns and to Scotland and we have had to give it all up because of the rain. We shall go away having seen hardly anything. You can see London. We have, that is. We have seen the things that everybody sees. But there are so many things that people in general do not see. How much longer are you to stay, Miss Carr? A week, I believe. Why? Don't make out a list of old buildings which are connected with famous people in history and visit them in months to it. You will see, it was most interesting. I unearthed all manners of curious stories and traditions in that time. Oh, cried Katie, struck with a sudden bright thought. Why mightn't I put into the list some of the places I know about in books, novels, as well as history, and the places where the people who wrote the books lived? You might do that, and it wouldn't be a bad idea either, said Mr. Beach, pleased with her enthusiasm. I will get a pencil after dinner and help you with your list if you will allow me. Mr. Beach was better than his word. He not only suggested places and traced a plan of sightseeing, but on two different mornings he went with them himself. With such a lot to see and to do, the last week sped all too swiftly, and the last day came before they were at all ready to decide 
to cross by New Haven and Dieppe because someone had told her of the beautiful old town of Rouen, and it seemed easy and convenient to take it on the way to Paris. Just landed from the long voyage across the Atlantic, the little passage of the channel seemed nothing to our travellers and they made ready for their night on the Gieb with the philosophy which is born of ignorance. They were speedily undeceived. The English Channel has a character of its own which distinguishes it from other seas and straits. It seems made fractious and difficult by nature and set as on purpose to be a barrier between two nations who are too unalike to understand each other easily and are the safer neighbours for this wholesome difficulty of communication between them. The chop was worse than usual on the night when our travellers crossed. The steamer had to fight her way inch by inch. And oh, such a little steamer. And oh, such a long night. Sadly, all good things must come to an end. So I bid you good night. Sleep tight and don't let the bed bugs bite.